But before we do that, since we're going to be talking more about figures of speech, I thought I'd read you part of a psalm that is starts off with like a half dozen figures of speech. And you're familiar with it, and you see the wisdom of God in giving this truth in figures of speech. And it's Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival." And Psalm 42 begins with, by my count, five figures of speech. You have the deer panting for water brooks, my soul thirsting for God. Tears have been my food. I pour out my soul. I feel like there was one more. Uh, when shall I come and appear before God? Um, you don't. You don't appear before God unless you are unless you want to die. Um, it's a it's a figure of speech of appearing and being in God's presence. So. Right there. But we understand all of those things. You understand what it means to be thirsty. You understand what it means. Tears have been food my day, for, by day and night. There's not a person in this room who doesn't get that and understand what that means. Because the figure of speech explains it perfectly. So I wanted to at least read a little Bible before we uh, degrade down to just talking about studying the Bible. It's necessary. It's, a, it's about as exciting as watching concrete dry, but without the concrete, the building falls down, right? So that's why we, we do this, and we'll do it as often as, as uh, you'll uh, allow us to. So today, we're doing Module 7, Session 6. We'll, we may get through all of it, may not. And <laughs> you see the title, uh, Interpretation Part 2, Identifying Figures of Speech, Special Issues Interpretation Part 2, and Study Synthesis Part 1. So I, I couldn't make it shorter than that, sorry about that, but that's, that's what we're doing. So again, a lot of what we're doing in this part of Module 7 is just at least for your awareness, so that you're not caught off guard, um, so that at least you know as you're studying a passage of Scripture, or you're uh, e- even just reading, you know... Hang on a minute. I seem to remember something from BTI. I need to be careful here. Um, That I'm not going to uh, take Psalm 42 so literally that um, since I desire to know God better, I need to go find a stream somewhere and stick my face in it. That's what that's talking about. Um, So hopefully it will at least help you to... Um, be be careful and to be very precise when you're looking at the Word of God. Now I want to go back and we'll just review identifying figures of speech because this is an important part of um, even really an important part of our herme- hermeneutic, our important part of our Bible study system because if you don't understand how to identify a figure of speech, boy that's the road to just making the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean um, and worse, creating figures of speech where they don't exist. And so that's why this is important. So just to review, you always take a passage literally unless there's a good reason for not doing so. Take a passage figuratively when it tells you to do so. Take the passage figuratively if there's a simile, like or as, as a deer pants for water. 
take the passage figuratively if a literal interpretation is contrary to the context or the purpose of the passage. Be aware that figurative language is a major technique in prophecy and poetry. Don't be surprised to find it there. It's, it's a beautiful tool that the Lord uses to help us. Take a passage figuratively if the literal sense would involve an impossibility or an absurdity. So that's, that's a major one. If you, if you don't remember any of them, remember that one. Because that helps you kind of uh, understand uh, how to divide out what might be figurative and what might not. Take a passage figuratively if the literal would involve immorality. And we use the example of Jesus saying in John 6, that unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. So uh, we understand he's being figurative there. And if a figurative statement is followed by a literal explanation, the figurative sense is confirmed. In other words, um, when Paul talks about saints falling asleep and then a few verses later says that they died, then we understand what uh, his figurative statement meant. And what I I decided to do was to go through, for those of you that um, that are doing the Bible study assignment to put together your own Bible study, I want to go through and give you a little help on the five passages you have to choose from. Um, It won't give you all the answers, but it'll at least give you a head start. And so, just a little help on the figures of speech. The John 11, 1-4 passage. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So I have it in yellow here. This illness does not lead to death. Why do we know that's a figure of speech? What happened to Lazarus? He died. died. Right. So clearly this is a figure of speech because Lazarus would actually die. But Jesus' actions later explain his statement. The illness didn't lead to his permanent death. It led to his temporary resurrection. Why do I say temporary resurrection? Uh, I preached a whole message on this. You can go look it up sometime. But Lazarus was murdered by the chief priests and the scribes at a later time. Because he was the key proof of the deity of Christ. And they weren't going to have it. That's another story for another time. But he was... It says this illness does not lead to death. So whatever Lazarus died of, it didn't keep him in the grave. So that's a figure of speech. You have the Acts 19 passage, if you're doing this one. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And we have that figure of speech in yellow here. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is a metaphor for people getting saved. And and I love this metaphor because it exalts not the people who are getting saved. It exalts the word. The word increased. It doesn't mean that the message is getting bigger. It doesn't mean that um, when the apostles first started preaching... They had little bitty New Testaments. And then later on, they had these big honkers like this. It's not literal. It's a figure of speech meant to exalt the gospel. 
that the word of the Lord increased. The word of the Lord, the gospel, is like the dam has broken open and the river is not going to stop. And then if you're doing the Galatians 1 passage, 6-9, through I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be be accursed. What's the figure of speech? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, this involves an absurdity. This involves something that's not going to happen. An angel from heaven nor or the apostles, they're not going to preach a contrary gospel. If you chose 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I don't know about you. I'm getting encouraged just by reading the scriptures aloud here. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you see the three figures of speech. The gospel is veiled, blinded the minds, seeing the light. And and you might say, well, that sounds literal to me. Remember, this is a figure of speech. The gospel doesn't literally have a veil on it. Um, Minds can't see anything. They can't be blinded, literally. And the gospel isn't a flashlight that you either see or don't see. But they're metaphors that we all completely understand. It's covered. It's, It's inaccessible unless the Spirit of God brings it forth. And then if you're doing 1 Peter 4... 8 through 11, above all, keeping, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you have some figures of speech here. Love covers a multitude of sins. What, what does that bring to your mind? That, it's, it's a blanket, right? It's, it's something that covers. It's, a, it's anything that covers. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. That's a key word, as. Remember, if it's a simile, um, th- this isn't someone saying, I am speaking for God. This is a teacher, whether you're teaching first and second grade Sunday school or preaching in the pulpit of a church, saying, I must be careful. I must speak as if I am speaking for God. That there is a, a weightiness and a, and a sobriety to that. So the figure of speech gives you the clear understanding of the text. I, I'm going to take a little, uh, little detour just for fun that's not in our notes here, but you know, one of the one of the major errors of the charismatic movement would have been solved if they understood how to deal with figures of speech. 
and understood uh, like we saw earlier um, even if we are an angel from heaven to preach to you a gospel contrary uh, which is absurdity or hyperbole which is like, almost like uh, exaggerating or, or a joke one of the key doctrines of many charismatic um, realms is that there is something called the tongues of angels and that, uh, that you aspire to speak in the tongues of angels. Well, where do they get that? It's from 1 Corinthians 13, and it's an absurdity. It's a lack of understanding of what a figure of speech does. And this is a pretty basic one. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and they stop right there, as if there's a period there, see, we need to speak in the tongues of men and angels. That's like first grade level understanding of Scripture. It's not a period, it's a comma. But do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, even if the Apostle Paul is saying, I knew every language ever invented by mankind, which is what the gift of tongues is, is, is actual human language. Um, and if I could speak some sort of angel language, whatever that is, he doesn't say what it is, doesn't define it, doesn't even say if it exists. Even if I could do that and I don't have love, then I'm just a big gong. It's a joke. It's silliness. It's saying I could be the most super spiritual first century charismatic on planet earth. And if I have no love, it's pointless. It is not a doctrine of that there are tongues of angels that we should aspire to speak in. That's, that would be solved by simply understanding what a figure of speech does. And yet, an entire doctrinal books have been written on this. One chapter on how to understand the figure of speech would have prevented dozens of books on the tongues of angels. So I just wanted to go down that road. And, and so we're, we're careful with things. And figures of speech generally are very logical. They make sense. And so uh, if you'll stop and, and think through them and not misuse them, then you'll have a better shot at proper interpretation. Well, what we're going to do now is a number of special issues, and we'll start with symbolism again. We, we've done this somewhat, but can't really do this too much. This goes along with figures of speech, but symbolism is a little bit of a broader umbrella. And just to give you a definition here, symbolism could be defined as an object, whether it's either real or imaginary, or an action which is given a meaning in order to portray rather than describe the qualities of something else. That sounds complicated. Well, I'll explain it. An object, real or imaginary, or action which is given a meaning in order to portray rather than describe the qualities of something else. So, I gave you three examples here. Jesus as the Lamb of God. This portrays, not describes the qualities of something else. Uh, Jesus is not the definition of what a lamb is. So that doesn't describe the quality. Um, it, It portrays, it gives a picture. Jesus as the Lamb of God is a picture of sacrifice. Every Jew reading that would understand that. The believers as sheep... 
I've heard this taken to an extreme um, where <laughs> I've heard a whole sermon, in fact, um, that was basically all about the qualities of sheep and why they're just like people. It, believers aren't described as exact representations of sheep. It's the other way around. Sheep are a basic representation of believers who need to be shepherded, who need to be guided, who need to be shown food, who need to be kept in a pen. That's that's what it is. It's not a one-for-one. Um, I've heard the well, the hooves stand for the people who are going to be disciplined out of the church, and the the fur on the outside, the wool, those are the soft, nice people in the church. It's like, you're taking it too far. It gives a picture, and it's an instant picture. I like this one, shaking the dust off your feet. That's that's based on when you walk inside someplace, you don't want to drag dust in, and so you shake the dust off your feet. The metaphor, the symbol here is that, that Jesus told the apostles, if you're preaching the gospel someplace, then they, they throw you out. You leave before they throw you out. And you shake the dust off your feet, meaning that you say, I'm done. I've done all I can do here. I'm going to move on to the next place. It was a symbol of saying, I don't even want to bring the dirt from this place with me. And so, you know, there's a, there's a clear indication here. Um, I, we know a man in church history who shook the dust off his feet. After 23 years in one church, Jonathan Edwards was thrown out. He was fired um, because he refused to allow unbelievers to receive the Lord's table. And so they, they fired him. Two funny notes about this. The last sermon he preached, um, they, they were dumb enough to let him preach one last sermon. The last sermon he preached was a sermon all about how all of them are going to stand together before God and then we'll see what's what. That was his basic point. And the other funny thing is they couldn't find anybody to replace him, so he substituted for the next 18 months. <laughs> so, But he shook the dust off his feet. And then he went and he saw uh, American Indians getting saved and was, was a missionary there and writing uh, his theologies and so forth. So... Those are example symbols. So let me give you some principles for interpreting symbols. That piece of church history brought to you by nothing in particular. (laughs) Principles for interpreting symbols. First of all, there are three elements of symbolism. There's the object, like the lamb. There's the referent, Jesus. And there's the meaning, Jesus as a sacrifice. Uh, Or you could use other words. What, What is the symbol? What is the thing it's representing? And what does it mean? So the object, the reference, the meaning. Remember that symbols have their base in reality. The symbol, the object, has meaning that matters. It's it's not just a picture for fun. It matters. Uh, Lambs and lions really exist, so a meaningful resemblance can be inferred. So it's a picture giving something that's familiar. Revelation 17.3, you have a beast with seven heads and ten horns. It doesn't exist in reality, but the elements are based in reality, heads and horns. We understand that. So you can build a picture in your mind. Determine what meaning, if any, is openly assigned by the text itself. That's the first place to start. Revelation 11.8, for example says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? In Jerusalem. So what is Sodom and Egypt? It's Jerusalem. And it even says the word symbolically. That's like the the easy one. 
How about this principle? If the verse doesn't give the meaning, check other passages, the nature of the symbol, and the major characteristic that the object and the referent have in common. In other words, you're going to, you're going to do a, a, a cross-section of checking. Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. Check other passages that refer to the Lamb of God. And, and what you'll find is that it is always speaking of sacrifice. Analyze the nature of the symbol. This is not, notice that Jesus is not the bull of God. Jesus is not the goat of God. Then those are legitimate sacrifices. But he is specifically called the lamb of God, the most helpless, the, the, the most meek. And then the major characteristic that they have in common, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, it's, it, it pushes us towards sacrifice. And it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is seen in all of his glory, you want to see Jesus in his glory, you don't go to the Gospels, you, see, you go to Revelation, and yet he's called the Lamb of God more than any other title that he's given in the, in the book of Revelation. So it's this glorious paradox of he is the meek lamb who was sacrificed and yet he is the king of kings and lord of lords at the same time and by the way that speaks to the eternal nature of the efficacy of his sacrifice he is the lamb of god he will always be the lamb of god he will always have the scars in his wrists he will always have the scars in his feet have you ever thought about this that you will see those scars you might have to take a number and wait 912 years to see them but you will see them because he is always the Lamb of God. Always will be. So, studying that symbol, it, it makes you dive deeply into the theology that may be part of that symbol as well. Here's a fifth principle. Be careful not to assign the wrong characteristic of the symbol to the referent. Uh, this, is, this is a common mistake. Uh, for example, a lion is savage and strong. Satan is said to be a lion in 1 Peter 5.8 because he's savage. Jesus is said to be a lion, Revelation 5.5, because he's strong. And so you, you want to study to understand what the right characteristic is. Another principle, resist the temptation to draw too many parallels. There's generally one major resemblance, not, not multiple. And the lamb, the lamb uh, example is, is clearly a good example of that. Uh, a seventh principle. Remember that one reference can be depicted by many symbols. So um, what do I mean by that? The Holy Spirit in the Bible is characterized as wind, oil, water, and a dove. So you have to pick the correct referent, the correct symbol to go with it. And you don't get to mix them up. You don't get to say that the Holy Spirit is like an oily wind on the water flying like a dove. Each symbol has a reason for existence and it helps you understand um, the Holy Spirit as water. He cleanses the Holy Spirit as oil. He anoints. He, he cleans the Holy Spirit as wind. He blows where and when he wants. He saves those whom he wants. The Holy Spirit as a dove, the gentleness of, of descending and, and a dove that, that flutters as it lands. And that was the picture of Jesus at his baptism. So uh, one referent can be depicted by many symbols and you don't get to mix them up and you don't get to pick which one you like. You go with the one that the scripture says. 
Another, so another uh, principle here in prophecy. Don't assume that because it contains symbols, then everything is symbolic. This is the one that gets under my skin. Symbols are contained in every book of the Bible. How many books of the Bible? Every one of them. All of them. Why is it that it's only the book of Revelation that amillennial theologians say the book is highly symbolic and therefore they make everything symbolic? There's a bunch of highly symbolic books in the Bible. Zechariah, very symbolic. Genesis has tons of symbols in it. But you don't get to say everything is symbolic. For example, Revelation 19 verse 19. And I don't have that up here, so I'm going to read it to you because I, I want to show you this principle of making certain that we're careful. With this Revelation 19, verse 19. My notes are in ESV. My Bible is LSB. I'm hoping I don't mess myself up. We'll see what happens here. Revelation 19, verse 19. A good example of this principle here. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth... And their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. Is there a symbol in Revelation 19.19? Antichrist is called what? The beast. Is he a beast? In the Great Tribulation, are we going to see this T-Rex walking around eating people because that's Antichrist? No. He is not a beast. That's a symbol. But are the kings in the earth and their armies assembled to make war? Are they real? Yes, those are not symbols. So it's ludicrous, it is illogical to say, since something is a highly symbolic book, I can make anything symbolic I want it to be. So, um, and there are even people in our camp, by the way, who would say that, that Jesus sitting on the white horse is symbolic. Is that ridiculous to think of Jesus sitting on a white horse? It's not ridiculous. It's not implausible. So until I have a reason to believe otherwise, I'm going to take that literally. Um, the donkey that he rode on was literal. I would believe that the white horse is too. And what a horse it must be. <clears throat> Which, by the way, proves animals are in heaven, just to tell you that. Open that can of worms with your kids and see what happens. <laughs> and the last... Uh, principle here in prophecy don't symbolize descriptions of the future that are plausible uh, this is another mistake in the book of revelation revelation 8:12 says one third of the sun moon and stars will be struck and not give light is that possible of course it is that's entirely plausible you ever been outside and watched a cloud go in front of the moon and one third of the light is is gone of course it's plausible so you don't get just a, something isn't if i can put it this way something isn't symbolic just because we say so there has to be a reason for it. And so um, if, you're, if you're interpreting a passage that is, that is highly symbolic, I would encourage you have these nine principles next to you and simply walk through them. And by the time you're done, you'll have a good solid answer of how to interpret that particular symbol. I want to go on now to uh, prophecy. Why is prophecy important? And I know that, uh, and I'll just take a little digression here for a minute. Dispensationalists um, are accused all the time of being obsessed with prophecy. I am obsessed with prophecy just as much as the Bible is. The Bible is obsessed with prophecy, if you want to put it that way, 33% of the time. So I feel perfectly justified in devoting 33% of my study to prophecy because that's the, the ratio in Scripture. And 
it, it's become uh, almost sort of a badge of honor in certain theological uh, circles to say, I don't have a clear view of, of the end times. I don't have a clear view of prophecy. I'm going to focus on the gospel. I'm going to focus on soteriology. And that sounds really lofty. But as uh, our beloved Dr. MacArthur pointed out a couple weeks ago at Shepherd's Conference, why would God be so incredibly precise about soteriology and vague and imprecise about eschatology. That makes no sense. He has been precise in every way he wants to be precise. And if I could help you understand what the difference is, if you ask many in our many of our brothers in the covenant theology camp, the amillennial camp and so forth, if you ask them, what is the most important area of doctrine? They will give you one of two answers most likely. If they say theology proper, the study of God, that's a pretty good answer. Most will say soteriology, the study of salvation, because that's what the Reformation was all about. It was about correcting soteriology and to a certain degree correcting theology proper. But, but they would put soteriology at the top and they, they emphasize that. And, and I appreciate that. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. There's no such thing as a seeker-friendly covenantal church. Because they're too serious about the gospel, and we praise the Lord for that. They don't go down that road. And if they do, it means that they they punted the gospel. Um, Frankly, dispensational churches have been a lot more guilty of going down the road of trying to please people. So, But they would say, theology proper, maybe. They would definitely say, soteriology is at the top of the list. We would say a little bit differently, and it's a bit of a trick question. What is the most important area of theology? It is doxology, the glory of God. And under the auspices of the glory of God, you have soteriology, theology proper, you have Israelology, you have all of the ologies, including soteriology, all under the glory of God. Because if soteriology is the most important, what do you do with the fact that God will be, hang on to your hats, just as glorified by the unbelievers in hell as he is by the believers in heaven? What do you do with that? Well, that has to come in some other weird category. But if everything comes under doxology, then that makes sense. And so... That being said, we would put equal weight on soteriology and eschatology. Why? Because eschatology is the end game. It's the reason. It's the point of soteriology. It's the point of salvation. Salvation is not to give me a good life now. Salvation is to give me a terrible life now so I can have eternal life forever. And what does that eternal life look like? A third of our Bible is there to to tell us that. So... Prophecy, don't discount it. And I know it can be intimidating. And, and it, it feels like um, you know, the, the weirdos that read a newspaper and then say, well, this is what this means, that that's what prophecy is about. It's not. So why is prophecy important? We're just going to start kind of at 30,000 feet here. First of all, it gives comfort. The Thessalonian believers were given an understanding, a basic understanding of the rapture of the church and the resurrection. I like to call it the rapture-resurrection event because both happen at the same time. Those who are being resurrected immediately prior to the ones who are being raptured. And the old joke is because they have six feet farther to go. Um, I don't know if that's the reason, but that's what God says. But what's the point of it? The point of it is not to say, well, you can't really know what's at the end. I'm, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. No, the point 
according to 1 Thessalonians 4.18, is to comfort one another with these words that you're supposed to say when somebody is down and out, when somebody is depressed, when somebody's lost a, a husband or a child or a job or health, to say, today could be the day of the rapture. Hang on. Maybe it's tomorrow. I, my dad uh, genuinely, with all of his heart, believed he was going to be in the rapture. He was sort of a weird mixture of non-speaking in tongues, charismatic, reformed. I, I don't know how that, that came out, but he was, just, he was just excited about the Lord. He became a Calvinist late in life, um, but he never lost that zeal. And he was killed in a car accident in 2005. And uh, so for him, it was a rapture because according to the, the coroner, he was killed instantly, like didn't have even one second to comprehend what was happening. So for him, it was an instant rapture to be away from the bodies, to be with the Lord. But I I have to wonder if my dad goes, oh, I didn't make it, you know, kind of a thing. (laughs) But that comforted him. He loved the thoughts of the rapture, which is why he didn't take his vitamins really that often. He's like, why am I going to do that? I'm going to be raptured soon. But it's meant to give comfort. Isn't that a glorious thing to think that today could be our last day on this earth? That's, that's wonderful. It's been giving comfort for 2,000 years. And the great thing is, is that since it's been 2,000 years, the chances of you being raptured are way higher than the chances of everyone else. It gives hope. In the midst of a violent and God-hating age, we look to the future for relief. That, if you don't want to embrace eschatology and prophecy, I, I feel bad for you because what an incredible source of comfort and joy. It's just it's tremendous. I mean, for me, it's enough of, a, enough of a comfort and joy that I'm committing about three years of Sunday nights to study premillennial theology in the millennium because it's a huge hope. It's massive. Prophecy is important because it converts the lost. If you analyze many of the sermons in the book of Acts, many of them are preached from prophetic texts from the Old Testament. Not to mention the very first sermon preached from Joel chapter 2 in, uh, in Acts 2. So it converts the lost. They, they come to saving faith because of prophecy. Prophecy purifies and sanctifies. We know that Christ could return at any moment and that influences us to live more holy lives now. It's very influential. I've been reading some uh, genuine preterists, those who believe that Christ has already returned, nobody can find him, but he's returned, um, and that we're living in the kingdom age now and that this is the kingdom. You know what I've noticed as I read them, and I I understand uh, statistics and I'm reading a cross-section, but what I've noticed is that preterists don't talk about holiness. And they don't talk about um, living for the Lord in anticipation of anything. And they tend to have a pretty harsh and uh, almost Gnostic uh, flavor to them where I know better than you, so you're just a jerk, that kind of a thing. Um, So... It purifies and it sanctifies us. You don't want to be yelling at your wife and get raptured at that moment, right? How embarrassing would that be? Well, you're saved, but boy, five seconds ago was pretty bad. It motivates evangelism. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It means whether good or useless, basically. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
What does that mean? It means we can stand before the Lord at any moment. And because of that, we want to persuade others. We want to, to be out there. <clears throat> uh, I got to visit with uh, Robert Ammon or Amon. I'm not sure how he pronounces it. He's in one of our older church members. He's in hospice right now and he's uh, awaiting his home going and he's growing a big old cancer ball inside of his uh, abdomen. <clears throat> and I, when I saw him this week, I asked him how I could pray for him. And all he could talk about is that, that he has um, made it a goal to share the gospel with everybody he can. Uh, his roommate, and he, he even yelled out, William, we're praying for you. And, and um, <clears throat> his eschatology is about to be realized and it's persuaded him to make sharing the gospel the most important thing in his life. I asked him, is there anything we can do for you? And he said, yeah, bring me some, some pamphlets. I get so out of, out of breath talking that I want to be able to hand information to people. So we got him some pamphlets, I think yesterday. And, um, but because he's about to appear before Christ, all he wants to do is, is, uh, is share the gospel with everybody he can. And by the way, that's been a lifestyle for him. That wasn't just a sudden uh, revelation for him. And then the last reason prophecy is important, it clarifies God's plans for the future. Aren't you glad we serve a God who's told you what's going to happen? He's told you what's going to happen to the world. He's told you what's going to happen to you. And that's why Christians have more fun than anybody. Because we don't, unless you just really want to, you don't have to worry about the future. I mean, if you choose to do that, I suppose that's one way to live. But I know my future. I just don't know how I'm going to get there. But I know my future. I do have a list of ten ways I don't want to get there, but that's up to the Lord. <laughs> but that's, that's a glorious thing. There is nothing in life that can't be uh, comforted with prophecy. Nothing. Okay, that's why prophecy is important. Let's, let's go on to guidelines for interpreting prophecy. And this is a short list, and we'll, try to, we'll probably finish up with this. The normal principles of historical, grammatical, literary interpretation still hold. You don't change methods for prophecy. And this is, a, I think, a great way to challenge someone who says that uh, the land promises to Abraham are, are now mean uh, symbolically the church. You need to ask them, show me the steps by which you came to that conclusion. And if they start with John Calvin said, then you stop them and say, that's not a hermeneutic. That's just an historical figure. Normal interpretations of normal principles. Take words in normal grammatical sense. There's such a freedom to not changing your rules for prophecy. Just read it like it is. Recognize that figurative and symbolic language will be heavy, but they still always represent real events. Um, are, are, are the meteors in the book of Revelation real? I tend to think yes. Are the bows and arrows real? I don't know. They might be missiles. Uh, I'm not going to go to the stake one way or another on that. But they represent something real. They represent weaponry. They represent destruction and death. Remember that prophecy focuses primarily on the Messiah and establishing of his reign. That is really the, the major area of prophecy. Yes, there's a lot of prophecies in Scripture that are both given and fulfilled in Scripture. There's little bitty ones and there's big giant ones. There's, there's everything from the fall of empires on the big side down to you're going to have a child this time next year on the small side. So 
those give us faith that uh, the rest of the unfulfilled prophecies will be uh, will happen. But just a little side study here. If you look at all of the prophecies in the Bible, you can chart a pathway. It might be a long way around, but you can chart a pathway to some sort of relevance to Messiah. Every single one of them. And it might be a long path, but they all eventually come around to Messiah and the establishing of his reign. Maybe the rapture is about to happen. Who knows? Fifth guideline, recognize the principle of foreshortening. This is so important. What do we mean by this? Um, the, The mountain peak principle, the near and far fulfillment principle. If you don't get this, you're going to miss the boat on a ton of prophecy. So let me explain this. From the perspective of the prophets, the coming of Christ in particular... It is like two mountain peaks with a valley in between. They can see the mountain peaks, but not the valley. Have you ever been driving on a long, flat plain, and you see a a, a short little mountain range in front of you, and you think, oh, this isn't bad, and if you're really bored, you try to guess, you know, how long, well, maybe I'm the only one who does this. Okay, it'll take me nine minutes to get to the beginning of that little range of hills. And as you start going up the hill, and you think, I'll be over this in just a minute, what you find is that because of your perspective, that little hill hid a massive mountain behind it and you're like yay I'm almost oh there we go prophecy is very much like that that from the perspective of the prophet they saw one mountain but behind it was a second mountain for example Jesus read from Isaiah 61 1 and 2 the first half of verse 2 in the synagogue at Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, and he stopped at the words to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He literally stopped in mid-verse. He stopped right in the middle because the next phrase was the day of the vengeance of our God. The first part referred to the first coming of Christ. The second part referred to the second coming of Christ. He didn't read that. Uh, He didn't say that all of this is fulfilled. He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled. Isaiah 61, 1, and the first half of verse 2. Now, there's two reasons for this. First of all, the church age, the valley in between, is a mystery in the Old Testament. It's not something that's revealed. It is mysterious. There's, there's little hints. We know that Gentiles will be saved. We know that Gentiles will be included in the kingdom. But there's, you can't build a theology of the church age from the Old Testament. So, that's the first reason that you have this, this, these two mountains. The second reason is this leaves open the theoretical possibility that when Jesus rides as, as predicted in Zechariah 9 verse 9 when he rides on the colt of a donkey to Jerusalem and a few people are saying Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna to the son of David it leaves open the possibility that all the leaders of Israel could come out and fall on their faces and say, you are the king of all the kings. You are the Lord of all the lords. We have sinned. We have, uh, we have sinned against God. You are our king. You are the son of God. All of Jerusalem could have bowed at his feet and said, you are the king. That was theoretically possible. And if that happens, all the prophecies of the Old Testament make sense. That didn't happen. All the prophecies of the Old Testament still make sense. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, early in his ministry. And he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He could have 
kept on reading and said, It remains to be seen whether today this scripture will be filled in your hearing. But it will be someday. So that is a, that is a huge important part of understanding prophecy. Another example, the prophecies of the day of the Lord in Joel 2. They're foreshadowed and demonstrated in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter preached about the day of the Lord, but the final fulfillment of Joel 2 awaits the kingdom reign of Christ. The, the, uh, the moon turning red like blood and, and all the decimation happening to the earth. That did not happen on the day of Pentecost. But it began that process, and so you have the mountain peaks there. There's numbers of other examples of this. Isaiah chapter 9, For unto us a, a child is given, a son is born, right? There's a son is born and child is given. One of those two. What happens immediately after that? The government will be on his shoulders. Two mountain peaks. Did Jesus come and take over the government of the earth? No. He barely left. He barely went even just a few miles away from the day, the place of his birth in his entire lifetime. And so you have the two mountain peaks. That's a huge, huge thing to look for. And then one last guideline for interpreting prophecy. Look for built-in interpretations. That's the easiest one before you you freak out. Oh, no, what does this mean? Oh, look, the next chapter tells me. Um, Daniel does this, for example. He he explains his prophecies, and he gives a couple of them multiple times so that you can make sure that you get it, and you can cross-reference them together. So we will uh, come back to other important issues in prophecy. We're going to stop here for now. Next time we're going to do um, parables. How to understand the A word, allegory. Because there are allegories in scripture, but you don't get to make them up. Um, We'll do some important issues in prophecy uh, again. And interestingly, we happen to be hitting millennial views. So we're already doing that on Sunday night, so you get a double dose. Uh, We have a minute or two for, do you have any questions about what we did today? I know we we covered a lot today, which was just half of one lesson, but... um, any questions about today interpreting prophecy, interpreting symbols? So exciting, isn't it? <laughs> but I tell you what, you come upon a symbol, you go, oh, where are my BTI notes? I, I need them. Any questions? All right. Well, thank you for listening. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we are so thankful to have a Bible. It's beyond comprehension that we can hold in our little bitty human hands a book that contains eternal truth and eternal truths of such depth that we have to study how to study it that we have to learn how to read even one simple sentence that we have to learn how to understand Jesus as the Lamb of God how eternal are your truths how how deep the waters of your mind eternal truths, eternal riches. Lord, I pray for each person here today, each precious believer, that this Lord's Day, we would be filled to the brim with truth, that we would be, we would be satisfied and satiated in our hunger for the Word, that we would be thrilled to obey you and, and thankful to follow after you. Lord, I pray for each person in their own personal Bible reading and study that their level of comprehension would grow and grow just as Peter declared that he wished that all the church would grow in the knowledge and the grace of Christ. Help us to grow in our knowledge of the word and therefore grow in our understanding of our God. We pray that our time 
worshiping you this day would be pleasing to you as we give sacrificially of our time and make this truly a Lord's day. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it.